The Choose Love movement offers no-cost solutions that keep our kids safe, providing them with the skills and tools they need to flourish. Join us in our mission to create the world we want to live in, one that's connected and compassionate. Check us out at chooselovemovement.org. Together, we can choose love. Hello to all of our listeners. Welcome to the Choose Love podcast. It's so wonderful to have you here with us today. And I want to, I, you know, I use this as a platform to share my beautiful friends and all of their incredible wisdom. And this week we have with us Mina, who is uh, a, a thought leader. I'm going to read just a little bit about you, but I want you to introduce yourself. But um, Mina, I met in person at Omega when she was giving a presentation, uh, she actually was hosting an event. And I just want to read what the event was called because I just loved it so much. Obviously, it was called Reclaiming Love and Joy in Ourselves, Our Schools, and Our Communities. It was at Omega. It was last July. And it was such a beautiful event. We were just at the uh, CASEL conference, the Collaborative for Academic Social Emotional Learning, and we ran into each other. That was a huge event. The, the event at Omega was much smaller. It was beautiful. Mina is a, and I'm going to read this from your TED Talk, if you don't mind, because I want everybody to make sure that they listen to that as well. She is a seasoned educational leader, celebrated speaker, accomplished author, and visionary entrepreneur. She has over two decades of dedicated service and has always been an educator activist at heart. Uh, she is a championing uh, the fusion of mindfulness and social emotional learning. And in 2022, you were featured as one of Mindful Magazine's 10 powerful women of the mindfulness movement. Um, you are a prominent voice in the field. You focus your speaking and writing on emotional intelligence and belonging. You are the creative force behind SEL Everyday Online Courses and the author of two influential books, Teach, Breathe, Learn, Mindfulness in and Out of the Classroom, and SEL Every Day, Integrating SEL with Instruction in Secondary Classrooms. The latter was honored as one of 2019's favorite books for educators by the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley. Uh, pretty amazing feat. And uh, Thich Nhat Hanh also gave you an incredible shout out by saying that... Uh, Mina is a precious ambassador of mindfulness. Thich Nhat Hanh, of course, being the Nobel Prize nominee and uh, such an influence, influential force in the mindfulness field. I love Thich Nhat Hanh and all of his teachings. So thank you so much for being on the Choose Love podcast, Mina. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you, Scarlett. You know, I'm so grateful to be here and I'm so touched by your boldness and just, just the language of choose love, just the sense that in each moment we have a choice, we can choose love or we can choose fear. And it's just so powerful that you, from tragedy um, have just sparked this movement about love, which is something that I feel really is at the heart of the social and emotional learning work and the mindfulness and education work. So just really happy to be here and to connect with your community. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's actually all about love. And I have to tell you that after 10 years, 10 years ago, I will say, when I started, I got a little bit of uh, pushback about the word love. Like, like choose love? Could you rename the movement? Could you call <laughs> it something else? Uh, it's, it makes a, a people a little uncomfortable to say that word. We're not sure that that's going to be successful. And, you know, that was Jesse's message, nurturing, healing, love. And I said, no, it, it shouldn't be uncomfortable because it's something that connects us all as human beings. It's a want and need that we all have that when we 
when we lack that love, connection, and belonging, we suffer. And I have to say that 10 years later, <laughs> I, have, I see the word. I don't have the pushback anymore. In fact, I was at Bradley Airport, and that is in Connecticut. I was recently flying out, and I saw love your journey. And it was a big, huge banner. I actually took a picture of myself pointing to this, sending it to my team saying, wow, this love word is out there now. It's in a lot of advertising campaigns for products. And that's okay. Because I think the more love that we see, the more that we think about it, the more it becomes in our vernacular, the more comfortable we are with it. And it's powerful. Very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in the, the last chapter of my second book is social emotional learning, what's love got to do with it? And I think, you know, you and I, we, we've been meaning to meet for so many years and finally, you know, the universe has put us together in the right place at the right time. Um, but for me, this work and really, you know, being an educator, it's, it's a practice of love. And, um, you know, I, for me, it's really important to think about love as a practice, as a choice, as something that um, we orient towards on a daily basis of just opening our hearts a little more um, and really choosing in the moment um, to move in the world in a more loving way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, can you share a little bit? Like, usually I think when someone is so outspoken and so in a space, considered a thought leader, uh, there's a story behind that. There's there's a reason for it. Um, everybody knows my story, but I'm wondering what yours is. What puts you in this space? Why are you so... Um, so adamant uh, about supporting social emotional learning and 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 schools as well as mindfulness is there something that happened personally for you that put you here sure well well there's many stories but you know i'll just start with um i'm the child of indian immigrants who came to this country my dad came in 1970 my mom came in 1973 and um when you grow up uh, as the child of immigrants, uh, there's a lot of um, emphasis on, you know, we came here with nothing and making it. And making it is definitely more focused on that kind of external success. I'm so grateful that I grew up in a household um, that also nurtured my inner life. And what I mean by inner life is um, cultivating uh, a relationship with the interior, you know, understanding that I am not my emotions, I am not my thoughts, but that these are um, things that I experience, but they're not the core of who I am. And, and a lot of that is, is connected to uh, my spiritual upbringing, you know, and I think um, that is what motivates me. And for me, teaching has always been a sacred task. So I didn't think I would ultimately be an educator. Um, I was on track and wanted to be like a foreign news producer. Uh, and when I graduated from college, can I yeah, ask a question? Can sure. we back just a second? Because you said yeah. uh, that was in your upbringing. It was in your the spirituality of your upbringing. Um, to know that you are not your emotions, you're not your thoughts and feelings. And so how did your parents help you come to that place? I'm just curious as, yeah, a mom, totally. as, also, as also somebody who, who knows that parents are listening, obviously, and educators and educators that are parents, but it's so interesting to hear you say that. I've never heard anybody say it in that way. And then, you know, there's another question. So if you're not those who are you? And I'm just curious about both those questions. Yeah. Well, uh, a lot of it is baked into, you know, the cultural upbringing, you know, there is, I find in the West, there's like an inherent dualism, right? The subject, object, mind, body. And in a lot of Eastern traditions, I'll speak from my own ancestral tradition, there um, really is this, this emphasis on the integration of the mind and the body. And in fact, you know, when people talk about mindfulness, they think it's your mind, but in Sanskrit, the word chit also means heart, this heartfulness. And so um, I'm grateful that as a young age, you know, I remember like going to like 
you know, yoga camps and like really being able to explore and cultivate a sense of embodiment. And for me, embodiment is really this integration of the mind and body, not necessarily privileging the mind over the body, but recognizing the power that comes when they're working in concert with each other. And so you asked if I am not my emotions and if I'm not my thoughts, who am I? Well, who am I, I think is the most important question we all need to be asking ourselves, you know, who am I? Mm -hmm. And um, there is a great Indian philosopher, Ramana Maharishi, who is from the same um, ancestral community as me. And he's sort of known as being famous for self-inquiry and really this, this exploration of, you know, of who am I? And for me, when I think about um the core of of my inner life practice it's to strengthen the observer strengthen the witness so um so i recognize that um that all of these experiences i have throughout my day are um objects of observation and the uh, the observer is me the witness is me the person that is awake to the unfolding of life is the mm -hmm. core of who I am. And so, you know, I have a five-year-old. And so we talk a lot about, all right, what are you feeling right now? Where are you feeling it in your body? And, you know, the, the famous phrase like this too shall pass, just helping him recognize um, that emotions are data. They are important, valuable information that tunes us into what what is happening in this moment. And I often, when I think about working skillfully with emotions, and I never talk about controlling emotions, it's always like, what can I learn? How can I skillfully work with or manage them? It's kind of like, all right, what am I feeling? Where in my body am I feeling it? And all right, ooh, I'm feeling some tension here in my chest. What is that? Hmm. Well, I think that might be a little bit of fear. And then I Sounds a little woo-woo, but I do live in California. Um, all right, fear, what are you trying to tell me right now? What are you trying to communicate to me? And so when I talk about our interior life, it is deepening our capacity to be the witness to what's unfolding, you know? And there's an interplay with the external and the internal. So even when I think about mindfulness, you know, it's not just breathing. It's not just, you know, being in the present moment. It's holding a dual awareness in real time. And that dual awareness is what's happening internally and what's happening externally and cultivating our capacity to hold that dual awareness so we have more agency. So we're not hijacked, you know, by what's unfolding in the moment. And just imagine if everyone had these skills, right? Because I was reading recently, only one out of every three adults can actually accurately identify what they feel when they're feeling it. And that's why, you know, I think we have so much reactivity and suffering in the world. And so um, for me, you know, I'm just so profoundly grateful that I had an upbringing where there was an encouragement to, um, to, I love how Mark Brackett says, uh, to be a scientist, not a judge, to be, be curious about what's unfolding for me internally and externally. Mm -hmm. That's so beautiful. So we have what we call a choice moment where we get into the present moment, this space in between what's happening and our thoughtful response. We mm -hmm. only have two choices. When something happens, we can react and that's usually out of habit and memory, or we can thoughtfully respond with love, but you need curiosity. First, uh, just to pause, to think about it, like you said, which I don't think is woo-woo at all. We need to, we, we need to comprehend the data that's coming into us. And by the way, our fear center is four times faster than our prefrontal cortex. So we actually need to pause to give our logic and reasoning center time to come online. And that curiosity helps us to figure out how to thoughtfully respond with love. And that's using our formula. But I love what you said about controlling emotions, because I think that that is that has been one of the focuses uh, that I've heard of um, that that uh, that we want kids to do is like control your 
emotions. Um, but the thing is, those emotions are evolutionary. They're they're simply information. So really to pause and get curious about what those emotions are, we actually can't really control our emotions. We can control our feelings, but our emotions just come. And as you said, not to be a judge, but to consider them so beautiful. Everything that you said, really amazing to know that we're not our feelings. And that, you know, especially with um, some of the statistics that were shared in the last conference where we just were a nationwide education conference in Atlanta was that 5,400 teens attempt suicide every day. And, you know, to understand that you are not those really difficult feelings, that that is trying to tell you something and that that will pass, that will pass. It is so important. So then it puts mindfulness and what you're talking about in the limelight of being able to foster hope in our kids and, and they need this. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, one of the most powerful, um, you know, philosophical teachings in my, in my, in my upbringing is just to, um, the valuing of impermanence because impermanence also means that like, you know, emotions change, they shift, you know, nothing is constant, you know, nothing, nothing is constant. And so can we, um, can we welcome that into our, our worldview and how we move through, uh, move through life and navigate the complexities of life and just remember that, um, yeah, that things think shift and change. And we do have some agency around that as well. Yeah, that agency part is really, really important. And but you don't have agency if you're going around reacting to everything. You you do have to take that time. You do have to to get in touch with your emotions and see what they're telling you to be able to thoughtfully respond. So so important. So, okay. You, I'm sorry I stopped you, but that was no, just it's all, it's much. all good. I, yeah. Um, well, you know, uh, trying to remember. So yeah, Wait, I you wanted to be a reporter. I wanted, well, I wanted to be a foreign news producer. It was so interesting. Okay. So I had internships, like I worked at uh, an NBC affiliate. I was like an associate producer when I was in college um, up in up in New England. I went to Amherst College and you said Bradley Airport. And I'm like, I oh, know, I used to fly out of Bradley all the time when I was an undergrad at Amherst. And, um, and then I remember interning at Reuters in London. I spent a year um, studying at the London School of Economics and I had a job lined up at the ABC network when I graduated from college. But in my heart, um, I was being pulled to kind of defer that job for a year. And I actually moved to Brazil and I taught at an international school. And I never thought I'd be an educator, but I was teaching in Sao Paulo. And well, two amazing things happened that year. The first is that um, a lot of people would come up to me. There's not a lot of people of Indian origin there. And they'd say, Você, Indiana, teach me about, you know, spirituality and yoga. And I'm like, I'm from Jersey and I grew up playing soccer, <laughs> but I did have this, I did have, um, you know, a spiritual foundation growing up, but, um, you know, it really opened up a pathway for me to delve deeper, um, in some of these ancestral practices and of all places, Brazil. Um, and then my professional development, my first ever teaching job, my professional development was to read Parker Palmer's The Courage to Teach. And there's so much in that book, but just to begin my teaching career with the understanding, as Parker Palmer says, we teach who we are. And to really be able to focus on integrating my inner life with my uh, with my profession and to approach teaching as a sacred task. So then I went to New York. I did work at the ABC network, uh, but every day in my heart, I just knew that my life was meant um, to go in another direction. So mm -hmm. after about a year there, and I'm so glad I had that experience because I don't have any regrets now about this kind of other life. If you, right. you know, those movies is a, one of them is sideways. I'm trying to think of those movies where you have like the two different paths. Like I had a window into the other path 
And um, that really began my career as an educator. And I've been an educator for more than 20 years. And um, I had an opportunity to teach in a variety of schools, public, private, international. Um, and, uh, and really, from the beginning, this work around social and emotional learning and mindfulness was the foundation of teaching and learning. So before mindfulness was like a thing, I was kind of like that, that teacher that was doing all this breathing and you know reflective stuff with her with her kids and it's really funny now because students find me from like close to 20 years ago and they're like oh my gosh Miss Srinivas and we were doing all this stuff in your class in sixth grade um and uh and after being in the classroom for a little over a decade one of my mentors Linda Lantieri who co-founded Castle and is really you know one of the one of the founders of the field of social and emotional learning um was just sort of coaching me around what what might be next and my first book was coming out at that time around really from more of a of a practitioner's perspective of integrating mindfulness into the classroom and this is part of the first wave of the mindfulness and education book so this is more than 10 years ago and um and a job opened up to work in partnership with Castle in Oakland and um and so I got my admin credential and I worked on the systemic implementation of social and emotional learning for five and a half years and in that work what I saw was that implementation was only really effective when you had leaders who embodied emotional intelligence and an equity consciousness. And that led to co-founding transformative educational leadership with Linda and with another colleague, Daniel Rechtstaffen. And we met because Tell, we're a year-long fellowship um, that really focuses on cultivating the inner lives of school leaders so they can engage in outer transformation in their school communities. And uh, we're 50% leaders of color, really focused on building a beloved educational community. And um, in addition to this year-long fellowship that we hold, and you know we've had more than 143 leaders and have touched more than 400,000 students since our beginning in 2018, we also hold an annual conference, which is where we met because when we landed on the theme, and every year when we come up with the theme, we really listen deeply to the field. And we just knew instead of a you know, surviving burnout. We're like, no, we're going to talk about reclaiming love and joy. And we just knew we had to have you there, Scarlett, given the theme of love, because I feel like you've been, you know, ahead of your time and doing this work before, you know, SCL has become a thing. Um, but really the, the boldness to talk about love, because I think at the core, um, you know, without love, uh, how can we flourish? You know, how can we learn? It's really at the core of everything. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. I, I agree. And so is mindfulness. So is being aware, self-aware, which is one of the social emotional learning skills, being aware of what we're feeling, what we're, what we're doing and how that is impacting other people, social awareness as well. Um, yeah, so incredible. And so that, that led you to kind of this concept and I've watched a few of your videos as well, but I've also had the pleasure of hearing you talk and I'm, I'm actually sitting here going, oh, I'm so happy to have Mina all to myself for an hour. This is incredible, uh, and share you, um, but also this concept of inner being, when did that kind of come into your life and yeah. is that important? Beautiful question. So I'd say inner being also has kind of sort of been rooted in my philosophical upbringing, but I can, I can trace back the exact moment. So um, and what does it mean when you're, when you're going through this, please? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I'll describe interbeing as a word that we really can't define, but I'll offer a little window into, into what it means. So um, after I, I finished graduate school, I kind of woke up in the middle of the night and had this like inner voice that said, you got to move to India. And of course, my parents are like, we left India like 50 years ago, mm -hmm. um, or at that time, it was more like, you know, 35 years ago. Um, but I moved to India. I just taught at the American Embassy School, but was really there to nurture my um, my interest in contemplative practices. 
and also connecting with my my ancestral traditions. And so while in India, um, I had the the great opportunity to be in the presence of Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm. And I'll never forget the moment I first heard the term interbeing, like really heard, I'd read his work. Mm. So it was the anniversary of Mahatma Gandhi's birth at the site of Mahatma Gandhi's martyrdom. And that evening in this profound weaving of birth and death, Thich Nhat Khan invited us all to be a continuation of Gandhi, to continue Gandhi's legacy, really, of, of love. Mm -hmm. And he introduced this term, interbeing. Now, interbeing um, can be sort of loose. Again, uh, it's, I, I don't feel it's something we can, like, defined because it's something you experience through insight you know it's something that you experience through um through through your living and, and your practice of deepening your awareness uh but it's refers to the interdependent nature of reality and so in a beautiful illustration of interbeing Thich Nhat Hanh um once wrote and has said many times that if you look deeply at a piece of paper you'd see a cloud floating in the sheet of paper if it wasn't for the cloud, you know, there'd be no rain and there'd be no trees. So the cloud is essential for the paper to exist. If the cloud is not there, the sheet of paper cannot be there either. And he goes on to say, if you look deeply enough, even deeper, you could see the logger who cut down the trees and the logger's ancestors as well. And so for me, interbeing is really a shift in consciousness where we move in the world understanding that there are an infinite number of causes and conditions at play at all times. Nothing exists independently. You know, I'm products of my parents' genetic material. I am products of like, you know, the farmer who grew the oranges um, and all of the processes that involved in the orange juice being in my cup this morning that now is inside me. All my students that I've taught live inside me. They are part of me and mm -hmm. I continue on. And in a way, Scarlett, you're in me through mm -hmm. our connections, right? Mm -hmm. So interbeing is a real shift from this transactional way of moving in the world towards a way of understanding just the, the deep interdependent nature of reality. And when we move in the world with an interbeing consciousness, how can we not act when we, when we see injustice? How can we not move to alleviate suffering? So interbeing and compassion are deeply, deeply connected. You know, I think sometimes people feel, oh, compassion, that's like a soft thing. You just are feeling, you know, um, you're feeling sorry for someone, but compassion is not pity. Compassion right. is being able to really feel with someone, but then having the motivation to act to alleviate suffering. It's not passive at all. And I feel like that motivation is strongest when we are moving in the world with this deep embodied understanding of our interdependence. Mm -hmm. It's so beautiful. I remember being in a presentation by Brendan uh, Oza Ozawa. Silva? Yes. Yeah. yeah from Emory University. And he yeah. had this question that he asked and he said, how many people do you think are involved in making a sweater? Now I thought I was going to be clever because I have a farm. I raise sheep. I have, you know, I know that you need to shear the sheep. You need to wash the wool. You need to spin it. And so I was trying to be clever in my response. And I thought, well, gosh, I can list off right away, like maybe 10 people, but I'm just going to expand it to 20. And then I'm going to expand it to say 50, because I'm sure that, you know, he's trying to make this point that there are so many people involved. And the amazing thing was, I think that he came back with like the, the, I think it was like a hundred thousand or something like, like mind blowing, like what? And he's like, yeah, you didn't consider the truckers that, you know, and, and like all of the people and it just keeps going how we are so uh, dependent interdependent on one another. And, you know, we think that things that are happening, uh, you know, on the other side of the world don't impact us, but they do. Well, think about COVID, right? If any, if anyone like was on the other side around this interdependence thing, I think COVID <laughs> has proven, right? Just the, how, how interrelated and interdependent everything is. Right. 
Right. That, that was, I will never forget that. And, uh, and I always wish that I had his slide because he kept, things kept popping up and it was just absolutely filled with little icons, hundreds and hundreds of icons of how this wool got to us. And, uh, it was, it was really amazing. So I, I love that concept and I think it's really important and then you also talked about another concept at Omega, which really sparked my interest because I haven't heard anyone talking about it. And it's almost kind of like, you know, I'm talking about nurturing, healing, love because of Jesse's chalkboard message, but you brought up this concept of tenderness and yeah. that's what you talked to the audience about. And I thought, wow, we, we need that in our mm -hmm. lives. We need tenderness. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to sure. that concept and why it's so important and, and how, here's the other thing, like all of these things are so important, but how do we, how do we bring them into our daily lives? How do we, how do we do the, this for ourselves? How do educators do this with kids and their own children? How can we get more of what we've been talking about? That's a loaded question, and it's going to take probably the rest of our, our podcast and time together to answer, but it's so important. Well, thank you for the question, and thank you for responding in the way you did, because I remember after I gave that talk and I was sort of unveiling a new piece of work that I'd been exploring, um, and you're right, it's not, you know, tenderness is profound, but often overlooked, and so um, I'll just kind of, you know, rewind a little bit that you know, I, I do a lot of public speaking and over the years, people have always said to me like, so you haven't done a Ted talk yet. Like that's crazy. Nina, you like speak all the time. And I, my answer would always be, it's not the right time when the universe sends a message to me that the world is meant to hear, but it's really coming from the universe through me. Like I'll know. And that, that happened earlier this year. It was literally like a visceral, I could feel it. Um, you know, uh, sense of how important this exploration of tenderness has been in my own life. And it kind of put me on this, this journey of deepening my own understanding. And again, this is not something that's out there. I'm actually working with an emotion scientist now, and it's the, the subject of my next book. And there's a TED talk that I did. I did do the TED talk a couple of weeks ago, and, and uh, I think it's in post-production out. It'll be out soon, but we'll also be sharing um, uh, like a, a guide to make tenderness come alive in your life. So it's not just a talk, but a way that you can delve deeper into the topic. And for me, the tenderness, you know, I've been playing with this. And one of my best friends who uh, is a professor at the University of Adelaide, and we actually met up in the Himalayas trying to study Hindi close to 20 years ago. And she was visiting me from Australia. And we were talking a lot about this concept of radical love and how powerful it is, how important it is, but how inaccessible it can feel. And I shared with her, you know, something that's been coming to me a lot in my meditation has been exploring tenderness. And she stopped and she said, tell me more. And then I kept sharing with her, well, for me, I feel like tenderness is a pathway to interbeing, you know, for me, tenderness, how I define it is a heart opening, expansive energy that melts a sense of separation with all life. Mm -hmm. And it melts that sense of separation, not just with humans, but with all life, with nature, you know? And for me, it was a pathway. It was a pathway to feeling this felt more embodied sense of interdependence. Mm -hmm. And tenderness is also embodied. It is somatic. It is something we feel. I feel like sometimes these concepts that are that are grand, that like compassion or empathy, or they can feel too big, they can get in our head. But when you invite someone to touch into an experience of tenderness or a feeling of tenderness, they will immediately drop into their body. There is a softening that mm. happens. And for me, tenderness um, awakens me to vulnerability. And it's interesting is there, I believe there's this whole chicken and egg thing with vulnerability and tenderness. Like, do you need to have vulnerability to have tenderness? Or do you need to have tenderness to have vulnerability? And I think it's both. 
Um, these are all the things I'm like getting into the real weeds around, like really exploring as we try to come up with a conceptual model for tenderness. And it's possible that it's part of the larger compassion family, but I do believe with my whole heart, and again, I'm not a scientist, I'm a practitioner, but in my school of meditation, we really go deep to understand the texture and the quality of emotions. What does it feel like in my body? You know, I can go through a practice and I can really communicate the difference between, you know, solidity and warmth, you know, how that feels different in my body or confidence and care. Like I really have spent time touching into what these things feel like in my body. And for me, tenderness um, is, is the sense of warmth, the mm. softening that happens. And mm. when I think about all oh, that's unfolding in our world right now, where there is, we have the armor up, right? We are not open. That tenderness can be a powerful pathway to a softening, to an opening. Um, I think for me, when I'm able to touch into tenderness, definitely for myself, I think that tenderness, it starts with tenderness towards oneself, you know, being able to hold oneself um, with that, with that warmth. And then there's also ways we bring it into our lives. So at in Omega, I talked about, you know, um, emotions as states or traits, right? And, and ultimately most emotions, they're both, right? And, and a state is something we experience in response to something. And a trait is something that we cultivate through deliberate practice, more like a disposition or a way of being. And I noticed that um, my son was diagnosed with a rare disease earlier this year, and we were rushed to the hospital. And I was more present than I'd been since he was a newborn. And I, you know, like the doors to my heart flung open and tenderness poured out. And I really asked myself, why did it take such a drastic circumstance mm -hmm. for me to come more fully home to my tender heart? And mm -hmm. could I cultivate this way of being that is so exquisite, that is so warm and inviting and instantly, you know, disarming, you know, like people, people open up, you feel that, that connection, that sense of of interbeing in a way. And um, I found a couple of things and maybe if it's okay, you asked like how, so the how Mina, so I'm gonna share a couple of ways, there's several, but a couple of ways that um, that have helped me, I think, move in the world in a little more of a, a tender-hearted way. And the first um, is this concept of wabi-sabi. So wabi-sabi is a Japanese, my husband's Japanese, and it, it is a, a Japanese concept that really acknowledges the beauty of impermanence and imperfection. Mm -hmm. And so like the cherry blossom tree is like the, the epitome of, uh, of wabi-sabi, you know, it only graces us with, um, with their, with their brilliance for a fleeting period. And so for me, just in my day with nature. I started to just awaken to this, this appreciation of impermanence. You know, I live in Southern California. We don't have seasons the way you do in Connecticut, but um, there is a change of weather I'm experiencing now as we move into fall and leaves do change color here, not like in on the East okay. Coast where I grew up, but I'm touching into um, the delicate beauty that surrounds me. And so it's a softening. Right, it's mm -hmm. softening, and I'm awakened to, um, to nature in a much deeper way. When I employ this this wabi sabi way, it's like you touch into the fragility of all life, and it actually reminds me of a practice that I learned in the Thich Nhat Hanh community. And in 2010, I ordained into this lineage called Tiapian, which literally means the order of interbeing, where um, I'd say we commit to um, this, this path of cultivating an interbeing consciousness is our like ultimate life goal is the best way that I would, I would um, explain this, um, this commitment I made when I ordained into this community, into this spiritual community and this path. And so um, the practice is called the three breath hug. And I do it with my son, probably need to do it with my husband more. 
Um, but it involves, and this is sort of my own kind of spin of it, but with the first breath, hey, I'm not going to be here forever. And with mm-hmm. the second breath, you're not going to be here t- forever, especially when you're like adorable, but sometimes frustrating five-year-old little self, right? Yeah. Wow. So with this last breath, let us cherish this moment. Ooh. And I tell you, this three-breath practice instantly puts me in this embodied sense of tenderness. And when my husband and I are having a moment and anyone who's been married for a long time or long-term relationship, no matter how much you love the person, you're going to have stuff come up, but we'll look at each other. We have the awareness or we're like three breath hug. All right. Instantly reminds us back into what matters, what's important. So this practice is incredible. Yeah. And when you, when you have consent, so I'm talking about my husband and my son, but with people I cherish in my life too, you know, really, because you're, you're breathing in, right? You're breathing. So you're instantly in your body. So it opens you up to being, you know, not in your head. And ultimately, you know, like I said before, tenderness is not, you don't think yourself into being tender. You, you tap in, you feel your way in, it is embodied. And, uh, you know, Scarlett, I feel like so much suffering in our world comes from us being disembodied. We are not living in our bodies. And so whatever we can do to integrate the mind, body, and spirit is so vital for us to be living, you know, to be fully alive. So that's a practice. I love the, the three breath, three breath hug of that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, uh, a practice that's really rooted in in the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh. I think I might have put put my own little unique spin on it, but that's what we do when we're practitioners, right? We we receive a practice, we play with it, we, you know. And I'd say anything that I share with anyone, I always say, "Hey, make this your own. This might work for me. It may not work for you. There are multiple pathways into awakening." You know, there are multiple pathways. So that's just one that's powerful for me. And um, and I mentioned wabi-sabi, just this like orientation around like impermanence and the fragility of life. Mm-hmm. Can we awaken to that a little more? And I just think about how powerful it is for you to live on a farm and for you to live this integrated, more integrated life with seasons and nature. And I think so much of our modern living really cuts us off from things that contribute to our well-being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I have I, a couple more, but I want to see if you want to, if you have questions about tenderness and, you know, like I said, I'm in the midst of like a, the, a, this is, this is the, the next body of work. At least it's what the universe is telling me, girl, this is the next, you know, the world needs this. So, um, yeah, it, it. I mean, just profound stuff. Um, when I think of tenderness, the first thought that I had was uh, thinking about looking at a baby, mm-hmm. you know, my, my baby or any baby, that feeling that kind of comes over you. It is that softening. It is that kind of leaning inward and just the enveloping, the embracing, the the love that, uh, that you feel for someone who, for some, some younger child that can't take care of themselves, they're totally dependent on you. And it's just, it just brings something out in you. Um, uh, yeah. So I just love it. I love it. And I think about, I think about, I'd love to hear more ways to bring it into the classroom, but at the same time, I'm also thinking about how it can help us in this, the world that we have today where there is an algorithm of fear that is being sold to us through advertising and the media because fear sells. And so, you know, you're not going to click on a headline unless it grabs your attention. It's not going to grab your attention unless it seems dangerous. And our brains are actually attractive to that because we want to survive. And that's our brain. We're evolutionarily designed to privilege the negative over the positive. So this work, you know, is deliberate practice. And, you know, so when we talk about the, you know, you describe the feeling of tenderness with the baby, it's like, that's the state, right? Like we're experiencing it in response to something. And the trait is, can we find a pathway to cultivate this so it is more of a disposition, a way of being. And both, both are supportive. And 
I, I would like to invite listeners to play with tenderness towards yourself because there's, oh, especially educators, we are holding mm. so much. And can we hold ourselves with that same warmth that we would embrace a vulnerable baby with? Can we just like soothe ourselves with tenderness? I think of mindfulness as the ultimate embrace. And it's funny, you know, years ago, um, I, I organized a program when I was living in India with John and Myla Kabat-Zinn at my school. And John did this experience. He's like, all right, you know, think of a thought and hold that thought with your awareness. And he's like, what's greater, your awareness of the thought or the thought? And I'll just say, I've done this with some people who are like, the thought is bigger than my awareness of the thought. So it doesn't always, it's not always that your awareness is greater than the thought. But for me in that moment, my felt experience was, wow, this practice of mind, it is like the ultimate embrace. And I think of tenderness. And for me, at least, you know, I think my, my felt sense of tenderness has deepened since becoming a mother, you know, just this sense of like, even when I think about, um, uh, in my in my upbringing, like the the great mother, there's a fierce tenderness. There's an all encompassing tenderness, you know that um, that is that is maternal. Um, but we all have a f the feminine and the masculine inside of us, you know. And we we need to we need to we need to balance that out. The yin and the yang, you know. And um, it's funny because I've talked with some men who are like, oh, I can't be tender. Um, but I think it's all in how you perceive and understand tenderness. For me, tender-hearted leadership is a leadership that gives permission for others to show up in their fullness with their vulnerability. And without vulnerability, we can't cultivate authentic relationships. So it's, you know, however you do that. Um, you know, in a way that feels authentic to you. But the first step is, I think, for for anyone listening, if you're curious about tenderness, just play with this in your own life. Like, what does tenderness feel like in your body? When do you feel tender? When you experience tenderness, pay attention to the quality of your interactions, you know, mm -hmm. and to just conduct your own experiment. It's funny, at Castle last week, you know, we were both in Atlanta at this big conference doing you know, I was doing all these sessions, you were leading all these sessions. And, and one of them, I gave a talk called leading for belonging, colon, try a little tenderness. And it was all about how, you know, I wear this little bracelet on my wrist that says bridge builder. And I, I wear it as a reminder um, to really be deeply committed to advance a world built on belonging. And whenever I feel an inclination to break that little symbol on my wrist reminds me to bridge. And for me, to bridge, to be a bridge builder requires me to move in a tender-hearted way where I recognize like our humanity, our fragility, you know, that we we all just want to be loved. We all just want to be seen. We all just want to feel like we belong. And mm -hmm. so you know, the last line of my talk was, you know, when you feel an inclination to break instead of bridge, try a little tenderness. Mm. So I'll invite folks, like when you feel that, that wall come up with someone to just see if you can take a breath and just touch into what would it be like to meet this moment with, with tenderness? And it probably starts with tenderness towards yourself, you know, but what would it, what would it mean to meet this moment with tenderness? That's so beautiful. And I wasn't even actually thinking about tenderness towards ourselves. <laughs> I was solely focused on kids. And you're right about the, the role of vulnerability. And that's hard when you're in an environment that is very stressful, as uh, education is today with trying to catch up with the academics from COVID and uh, the the other issues, the the increased amount of trauma that's coming in, the behavioral issues that um, that the educators are seeing, the social delays from the lockdowns. I mean, all of this is is kind of swirling around on our educators. And I always call our educators the modern day superheroes of our times. They are boots on the ground, showing up in their classrooms, putting their best fo foot forward every day. Those of you who are listening to this podcast, 
and you're still listening, you are absolutely just a, a, a phenomenon in my mind because mine too. And I don't know if you know this Scarlett, but teachers make more decisions during the course of the workday than any other profession except surgeons. And so they are holding so much. Um, And so definitely, you know, taking those moments, I, I practice sometimes wait time in the classroom. Teachers who are listening will know what I mean by wait time take a breath. Can you touch into tenderness in that moment? Mm. And, you know, I think so often um, we can, we can lose that because there's just so much, we lose that connection to our bodies and to the sense of like all these, these little people, you know, are there, they are so vulnerable. And what would it look like to cultivate a, a disposition of tenderness in the classroom that that warmth, that gentle care, that nurturing. I mean, I think tenderness, um, that, you know, survival of the human species depends on tenderness, right? That, you know, it's a, it's a critical part of, of nurturing love and, you know, nurturing love as parents, but as educators, you know, we are nurturers. And so finding our own pathway to what, what tenderness looks like, feels like, and sounds like in our body, in our being, and in our classrooms in a way that feels um, authentic and safe and right Mm -hmm. for you. You know, Mm -hmm. for me, again, it's like, can we, can we build the bridge? Can we soften? Can we touch into that sense of interbeing, right? Throughout our day. Um, and the more practices we engage in these micro practices where we get out of our head and into our hearts, um, is what can really make a difference in our well-being and in the well-being of all the young people that we serve and in everyone in our lives, our loved ones, our colleagues, our friends, even strangers. And then every time we do that, it's wiring our brains towards love through neuroplasticity and pruning from the fear channels. And it ripples out because people notice, you notice that person who is very centered and who maintains calm in the midst of chaos. And this is a really important, important practice, but I will say it might be the one thing that goes initially when all hell breaks loose. (laughs) in a classroom, in a Mm. home. I think we, we may lose tenderness first. So Mm. what would be a practice that, you know, when we're just feeling like we're losing it and, uh, you know, in the middle of just a storm, um, what's another practice that educators could, could use that people that are working in corporations can use that parents can use to bring us back into that place of tenderness when we've lost it. Totally. Well, um, some folks who are listening are probably familiar with the Gottmans and the amazing work they've done on marriage and, and the research on relationships. And I often talk about the practice of turning towards and while, you know, turning towards refers to, um, uh, Acknowledging responding to bids for connection and bids for connection are any attempt a partner makes verbally or non-verbally to connect with their partner. Now, I believe this concept of turning towards and meeting bids for connection extends far beyond romantic relationships, that every moment is an opportunity to turn towards. And they followed couples through the first six years of marriage. And what they found is that the couples who stayed together turned towards each other and met their partner's bids for connection 86% of the time or more. And these bids are small. It's not like wanting to have a heart to heart. It's literally like, you know, I think of my husband will say, huh, it's going to be, it's going to be sunny today. You know, he'll make a comment about the weather. And instead of me ignoring it, engaging, turning towards, even like physically turning towards, we are, we are on our devices, right? We are not turning towards. And so beautiful. You know, I think in a school, if we turn towards each other more in a school or in the workplace, even just acknowledging a smile, a hello, you know, whatever it is. Um, And again, you know, in ways that feel authentic and true to us, it will be transformative. You know, we, we're, um, 
nowadays so conditioned to be like on our devices and they're really pulling us away from all it means to be human. So yeah. this this practice of turning towards is is vital. And I'd also say uh, we talked earlier about curiosity, but just being curious. Um, I know that a lot of my suffering comes from judging, judging myself and judging others. And if I can take a breath and be curious and even just say, take a breath, tell me more. I move towards connection instead of breaking, right? I'm moving towards bridging instead of breaking. So I'd say definitely turning towards and then this practice of just, just being curious, you know, gentle curiosity is so important. And to, uh, to practice curiosity towards yourself is foundational, but then, you know, towards others, because judging, um, we need to have discernment. Discernment is important and valuable, but I'm making a distinction between discernment and judging, you know, and judging, you know, really doesn't serve anyone, you know, when we get into judgmental mind around others or ourselves. So how can we, how can we meet that with curiosity? You know, this is all the inner work, all the inner work, the inner work that is so foundational. We talk and tell so foundational to being a transformative leader. It's attending to our inner lives and doing this kind of inner work um, moment to moment throughout our day. I love that so much. One of the things that I say to myself, if I feel something rising in me and disconnection and frustration, I turn it, flip it into being fascinated by what is happening in front of me uh, because because we are so fascinating and and especially somebody who doesn't see the world like you see is maybe having a, a personal issue but is is uh, in their behavior showing their pain I mean everything about that is is actually fascinating and also an opportunity to to learn learn and grow. And I always say, if I put my head down on the pillow and I have learned something, then the day was a good day. And that's why we're here to learn and grow. And you have absolutely helped us in that endeavor, Mina. I mean, this was an incredible podcast. I so appreciate it. Do you have anything that you want to- One last thing I want to share with folks. Um, The first is, a couple last, the, the first is just that you know, in a lot of my work, and again, you know, I was a classroom teacher, a school district leader for many, many years. Um, Sometimes you'd hear the phrase, well, like hurt people hurt people. But I want us to remember that loved people love people. And so if that can be my last message, when we are feeling disconnection, and we recognize that someone may be acting out of harm and hurt, because we, because folks are, they are, they are acting out of harm and hurt. Can we break the cycle? You know, hurt people, hurt people, but love people, love people. And the other is to just, yeah, if you want to stay connected, um, I have a lot of free resources on my website, which is just ninasrinivasan.com. Lots of articles, guided meditations, and um, and you know, we'll, we hold this annual conference every year at the Omega Institute and. Uh, applications are opening for our fourth cohort of fellows in transformative educational leadership. They open on Martin Luther King Jr. Day this January. So you can check us out at teleadership.org and just deep gratitude to you, Scarlett. I will never forget that fateful day. I was teaching sixth grade um, when your son and his classmates in his school experienced this heartbreaking tragedy. And I remember holding a circle with my students and that, you know, this many years later, here I am speaking with you as such a beautiful model for meeting tragedy with love and seeing it as a moment for even deeper spiritual practice and evolution. And then sharing that with the world, profound gratitude to you. I'm so grateful to have a sister like you on the path and you know, may, may more and more educators, um, choose love. Mm. It's going to change the world. It's going to change the world. And, and I'm so blessed to be on this path with you, to know you, we will stay in touch and continue to work together to make the world a safer, more peaceful and loving place. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with the choose love community 
And I know that we'll be back together again. There will be a part two to this podcast. There just has to be. <laughs> For sure. We're, we're going to trust it. everything will unfold just as it should at the right time. That's right. Certain so of that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for giving a space for me to show up in my fullness. I appreciate it. You take care and blessings to everyone who is listening. Thank you. It's all part of us. We can all choose love. It'll lift you up if you let it in. Let the healing.